0: First there was darkness, then came the strangers. How long have you been married? Nearly four years. Why do you ask? Because you seem uncomfortable with your ring, as if you were unaccustomed to wearing it.
1: I found these keys in my pocket, so I assume I live here. You are supposed to be my wife?
0: Supposed to be. John, you really... Know who I am, do you? You think about the past much, Frank? See, I've been trying to remember things. Clearly remember things from my past. But the more I try to think back, the more it all starts to unravel, and none of it seems real. What happened to my parents? Where are they now? They're dead, Johnny. You don't remember that really? It's beautiful. It was a gift from my mother. It's a funny thing, though. I can't remember when she gave it to me. How do you think I could forget a thing like that?
2: Help me out here. Make me understand. I have this jigsaw puzzle in front of my face, and every time I try to rearrange the pieces, it still doesn't make any sense. You you think it makes sense to me? I'm as much in the dark here as you are. You heard of a place
0: (laughs) called Shell Beach?
2: Sure. You know how to get there? Yeah. You tell me? (sighs) All right. You can't remember, can you? Wait. I got a better one for you. When was the last time you remember doing something during the day? And I'm not talking about some distant, half-forgotten childhood memory. I mean, like yesterday, last week, when? Can you come up with a single memory? You can't, can you?
0: You know, something I don't think the sun even exists and it's blessed. So I've been up for hours and hours and hours and the night
2: never ends here.
0: And I'm back in the apartment. I suddenly
1: felt like I didn't know you at all. It was as if you were a stranger. But how can that be true?
0: There is no ocean, John. There is nothing beyond the city. The only place home exists... ...is in your head. Yeah, old school. We be old school.
1: Yeah, old school. They say I'm not the last. you Sanders giving us a reason to believe.
2: Yeah, Just seems to like cool. Cool. that's that's falling apart at the seams already.
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, no. he's still.
2: He still plans on filibuster. Mitch
1: McConnell is doing the thing that many people anticipated him to do, which is shut everything down and attach stimulus checks to a bunch of other bullshit right. we don't want.
2: To the defense <clears throat> bill and then also to the Section 230, the
1: right. tech so stuff. So he's going to filibuster to try to force a clean vote. And we as citizens who give a shit can write to our senators and also push them to do the same. Yeah, that's an email I sent today. Does it? Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I saw—I don't remember who it was now—but one of the senators who was like, "Oh, there are, are you know military paychecks and uh, arms that we need to send to Ukraine that are and and the renaming of of military bases that that are named after Confederate uh, soldiers that that is are more important right now than." than holding up this bill for the sake of a stimulus. Yeah. And I was like, cool. That's, that's cool. dope.
1: That's priorities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's really all I got to say about that. Bernie Sanders is, you know, whether or not you fully agree with that man, he is time and time again, one of the few people in the literally hundreds of people that run this government Ooh. who every single damn day gets up and goes to bat to get more for the American people. Black, brown, yellow, white, whatever. Like, he is fighting for us. And
2: it's always Bernie filibustering. It's
1: always Bernie just filibustering until the wee hours...
2: Someone brought this up. ...of the morning. (laughs) Someone brought this up online, and it was like, couldn't someone younger than Bernie Sanders take over the mantle and filibuster? Like, Like, Bernie's, you know, almost 80. Like, the man is... In, uh, strong as an ox and, and you know has a ton of passion and fury and, and fire in his lungs you know but like he's also an 80 year old man like he's he surely has to like piss himself at some point like during that you know I mean
1: honestly you know a lot of the critiques that come from the left are sort of reduced down to this frustration with you know a lack of any sort of substantive action or meaningful action on the part of the Democratic Party, at the end of the day, if we're not seeing the people who we have voted into office to take care of us, fight for us in a year when we need all the fighting on our behalf that we could possibly get, it still looks the same yeah, you, know, you said this. it's 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 a distinction without a difference. It, at the end of the day, it still looks like you're not doing anything right. And there is something to be said about the little spark in my heart that I get when I read a headline that says, Bernie Sanders is planning to filibuster the fuck out of the Senate, right. in order to get Americans more money. Right. Like,
2: to make life miserable for the for the Republicans is how it was framed by like David Dayan at The Prospect. right? And it so just like,
1: feels like something, you know, it yeah. feels like something to believe in. And
2: it's that spark that ignited that base of people, right? Seeing somebody who is actually, you know, willing to act on their principles and not just speak on them the way that most people do it's not just posturing and this is a thing that i know will get me in trouble if we keep it in the episode
1: well then we're definitely keeping it whatever it is
2: many people uh identify themselves as progressive it's a completely nebulous bullshit terminology now like no. it doesn't have any real distinctions like so many people who are really just liberals dressed up in a lot of like cultural politics refer to themselves as progressives
1: right without the without the part that like actually comes with the word which is like an imagination For right. what change looks like right
2: progress, progress. right something <laughs> that identifies themselves Something or...
1: outside of the box of precedent.
2: Yeah, people who s- somehow Ascribe to an ideology that challenges the status quo in any way That's what progressive means to me and it's not what a lot of people embody on that, like, left of center spectrum. And I said I'd get in trouble for saying this. A person who I think embodies that perfectly politically, Senator Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. right? Somebody who has proudly declared themselves a capitalist and, you know, loves a, a good, strong, robust economy and and a marginal deficit, right? Somebody who's more inclined towards a lot of the more wonkish economic policy that has uh, marched us forcefully into austerity politics for the last 30 years, but her cohorts too, right? Don't seem to demand anything of her, which is a thing that I find insane. And I and it, like, like I said, I will get yelled at because I'm a white dude on a podcast telling people who support Elizabeth Warren, hey, why isn't she a person who is supposed to be A progressive member of this party, a face of this party that is ushering in a new, young, democratic ideal. Why isn't she somebody who is taking up the mantle and filibustering for eight hours on the Senate floor the way that Bernie has historically right now?
1: It's a really good question. I actually haven't
2: heard anything from her I I can't imagine that she's busy with anything. She didn't get an appointment in this cabinet anywhere. I got it. Like, in, this is her role. This is her job right now is being a Massachusetts senator.
1: Yeah. It's, it's her job. That's her job. I will say I did get an email from Elizabeth Warren's campaign.
2: Okay. Good.
1: Uh, today. Great. Calling for... Uh, bold structural change. Yeah, words, big big, big
2: or, structural change. Words is I like. Right.
1: Words I like. But to your point, there wasn't a whole lot of specificity in the body of the email around sort of what she was really asking for and what she's fighting for. And she is, you know, co opting the support um, behind Sanders um, the way that a lot of uh, the way that the Democratic Party is, as they should be. And that's great. But yeah, it's a good question. There's there there really aren't any other senators willing to get up and as consistently and vehemently fight to just get the American people more.
2: Yeah, of course. And this is this goes to a conversation that we've had off mic before about getting getting liberals and and getting people who are democratic voters to understand and acknowledge the idea of a spectrum of ideology, you know, Joe Manchin is a Republican, right? Like he has a D next to his name, but Joe Manchin is never going to be someone who's going to vote for progressive legislation. And yet he considers himself part of the democratic party. You cannot tell me that Joe Manchin is the same as Elizabeth Warren or the same as Rashida Tlaib or the same as Bernie Sanders or the same as Kamala Harris, you know, yeah, these people are different in their ideologies. And even though they're under the same tent, they fight for different things and they have different thresholds for what they will represent and what they will support. So my issue comes with the fact that Warren is meant to be some sort of nice, comfortable Goldilocks zone between the left that people find, uh, you know, less palatable in, in liberal circles and the more centrist candidates like a Joe Biden. And I just wonder what the expectation is for someone like that and why that person hasn't been a more vocal leader on big structural issues like this, or at least momentary structural issues that will profoundly change people's material condition in the midst of this pandemic.
1: I totally agree. If she's progressive, what, is, what should she be doing right now? Yeah. And if she is distinct from say, a, uh, a Joe Manchin to your point, what is it that distinguishes her in action? right? Not just in rhetoric, but what is it that distinguishes her in actual policy and in action she is taking as a senator for Massachusetts. And a lot of times, the when you get down to the action part, when you get down to the policies that are pushed forth, supported, not supported, that's where the distinction between a lot of people with D's next to their name falls apart. The thing that we have to remember at the end of the day is that the people who are in power in our government want to stay in power. That's how power works, right? (laughs) And so there's this revulsion around calling out that fact. (laughs) And it's like not a it's not a, like, scandalous thing. It is It is a, it is a matter of fact. People right. in power want to stay in power. It fucking feels good and you can control whether or not you live or die. Like, who doesn't want that? And so it's a, you know, it's this, like, really hard pill for people to swallow to even make the admission that someone who is has a D next to their name maybe doesn't have, like the people's interests prioritized over their own. That's a hard thing for people to acknowledge.
2: Yeah. Most people won't even admit it, right? Most people assume that D good are bad and these people do everything they can to make our lives better. And the honest truth of that is is like, no, these people do everything they can to like preserve their positions and their jobs and do enough to keep things, you know, to keep the the ship right side up and, and, and afloat. But without actual concerted pressure and without something requiring them to do something different than they've always done, people often won't.
1: Well, and with the, the, the rightward slide of the Democratic Party, Republicans, by and large, don't want things that help the most people. We know that. But we don't necessarily have a completely opposing other side to that coin on the part of Democrats. We have like a, we're less that. It's more, we're seceding ground to this disdainful, aggressive right wing. Not, we're running in the opposite direction as a unified left front.
2: Right, and everything is framed within uh, a distinction from a Republican standpoint, we're Every, everything of is, our
1: own thing right.
2: and and nothing is defined uh, on its own grounds or in the abstract. Everything is uh, sort of always tangentially linked to how it compares to the opposition. And it's and it's never, you know, a a generative idea in the opposite direction. It's never starting from a point that we hope to achieve. It's always, it's always running defense is what it is, right? Like it's it's always basically presenting yourself as it they they are our protectors and they will hold the line and make sure that, you know, you don't have to uh, get an abortion, you know, with a coat hanger in a motel room or, uh, you know, we'll get the death penalty for possessing a gram of coke or something like that. But they never push forcefully in the alternative direction. Right. They're
1: not making something new. They're just trying to prevent worse things from happening. Those are two very different things. And here we come back to this lack of imagination, right? The, the rhetoric that we consistently hear from a lot of the entrenched um, Democratic Party is around precedent, about, uh, around what's feasible, what's doable, what's practical. Instead of saying, we're fucking breaking the mold because guess what? That's what our current moment is demanding of us. And we're going to think outside the box. We're going to imagine something that we haven't done before and we're gonna try it and we're gonna see what happens. And maybe that gets the one third of the American population that doesn't give a flying fuck enough to vote to actually give a fuck and, and support a party that feels like it's doing something for them. This movie that we are about to talk about ...is not lacking in imagination. Ha-ho! Did you see what I did there? I did.
2: Great segue. Yeah, I guess we can get uh, right into it. The film we're talking about today is Dark City. It's from the year 1998, directed by Australian filmmaker Alex Proyas, who's... uh, this is a sophomore feature coming after The Crow, the one that uh, unfortunately ended uh, Brandon Lee's life... Uh, but it, similar in style, it's got a lot of those kind of gothic elements, a lot of that that sort of noirish feel to it, and feels a lot like it is very derivative of the same kind of comics and graphic novels that inspired the Crow. Though uh, it is an original property, it is all from the creative imagination of Proyas and uh, and his collaborators. One of those people being David S. Goyer who's a very famous screenwriter, producer, director, um, who has his hands on all kinds of properties. Uh, He's most famous for being a principal collaborator on story for all of Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. Also more infamous for being involved in the production of Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. (laughs) Yeah. Films that I know you love a great deal, Carly. Terrible. Uh, The guy's been around. He, he, Really likes adapting these sort of sci-fi uh, comic book properties and turning them into something uh, sometimes good and, and sometimes incredibly bad. Uh, but he's he's doing some interesting work here along with along with Proyas to make something really I think distinct and compelling.
1: It's funny that you say Batman. Because in the opening minutes of this movie, I turned to you and said, this is like The Matrix meets Tim Burton. And I specifically was thinking of Tim Burton's Batman. Yeah, And Tim Burton's Batman came up again with regards to this movie in Roger Ebert's review. He sort of references it offhandedly. Ooh. The review he wrote of this movie in 1998. I think the through line there of like, various Batmans um, and creative endeavors around that particular property is interesting because there is a kind of dark, gothic, i.e. Gotham, aesthetic to this movie that feels like it could show up in a Tim Burton movie or even in a more sort of like uh, new-agey Christopher Nolan version of of a Batman or some other story.
2: You know, this is... Probably the very first time that I ever put two and two together and realized like Gothic, Gotham. It's very stupid of me, really? but I, I never thought about it before. <laughs> never thought it was like it was like, oh yeah, it's named Gotham. I'm like just
1: blowing <laughs> your mind left and right. Yeah, I don't. There's a, don't like test my Latin knowledge on this, but there's like a root word in there that means sort of like city or something or something, 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 something. Oh,
2: like Gothamist.
1: Gothamist. Yes. That's, uh, that's what I'm going for. But words. Words. I can't, (laughs) I've, so I like have noticed that over the course of this past year, I, I like can't, I've gotten really bad at finishing sentences Mm -hmm. and I'm not doing it in a cool like yada, yada, yada way. You usually just make
2: like a fart noise at the end. I just
1: like either uh, automatopia, like some bodily function, (laughs) or I say, uh, whatever, 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 which is like way worse than the automatopia (laughs) or yada, yada, yada. Um, no, yada, yada, yada would be way better. It's more,
2: that's what I mean. Whatever, whatever, whatever is just more syllables. You're doing more work.
1: It's, it's challenging. I, I think it's because,
2: because everything is a simulacrum right now and you're only talking to people through a screen all the time.
1: I think it's that. And so, like, when I have to use my voice box and, like, complete a thought uh, in real time and not, like, have five minutes to type it into, like, a tweet or something. <laughs> well, you're very
2: careful and considerate with your words as well. And so. So I've just I, given up. That's I, I, my point. I, when, when you're, when the dictionary that is Carly's brain can't come up with the specific word or syntax, I notice that there is usually, like, a abort abort abort
1: right whereas i used to keep trying now i just i abandon shit right and now and
2: now we just get a noise (laughs) i guarantee if we listen back to this year in in podcasts we'll find a few examples of that but uh it's always always fun in the editing bay hearing what kind of Bodily functions you're going to use to substitute for that that perfect word.
1: Yeah, I'm a smart lady.
2: You are a very smart lady. <laughs> I guess I should mention too, like, we're doing this film here at the very end of the year. Oh, it, yeah. If you're listening to this, it is like less than 48 hours before 2021. We had intended to make this episode about the Catherine Bigelow film Strange Days from 1995.
1: Aptly named.
2: Yeah, it's starring Ray Fiennes, Angela Bassett. Juliette Lewis, I guess. And it is about like Y2K. Like it takes place in a near future. And it's like a sort of techno noir thriller that takes place in the last days of 1999, which we thought would be apt to discuss on this particular episode. Lo and behold, it is completely unavailable in any sort of digital format, which is, uh, you know, going with this idea of Realities that are that are constructed by by other players and and people that we don't have any control over. This whole idea of like something, the ephemerality of digital media is is slapping us in the face right now.
1: The universe is demanding that we go hunt down a DVD copy of Strange Days, which is <laughs> from like eBay. Or which something. is which is
2: not a hard thing to do. I'm sure. Like it's it's not like it's not available. It does take some time for us to get a DVD drive and the, the film itself delivered and, and all these things. So we'll probably do it, but or maybe we'll just wait until this time next year well, to do I this one. I have a
1: feeling that the theme of strange days, uh, being applicable to some current moment that we're experiencing is not going to change anytime soon. No,
2: we're going to have lots of time to deal with the notion of, of, uh, of strange days approaching strange days ahead as it were, but I, we keep kind of coming to this idea of the simulated reality that's on display in Dark City. This film, like I said, came out at the very beginning of 1998. Uh, almost nobody saw it when it initially came out.
1: I had never even heard of it.
2: Maybe people still haven't seen it. I know a handful of people who are uh, very passionate about this movie, who really enjoy it.
1: It is absolutely worth a watch.
2: It definitely is. It was completely destroyed at the box office. It came out, I think, in the same weekend as The Wedding Singer and was also in theaters uh, during the swan song for Titanic. And this being February means that it was it was probably around the time that it cleaned up at the Oscars and took home like 11 awards. Everyone was watching those films and not this film. I think this movie only made back like half of its budget uh, at the box office, which You know, it doesn't surprise me, too, just with how difficult this film is to categorize. It is a sci-fi film. It's also kind of a noir film. Mm -hmm. It's uh, sort of a, a psychological thriller. It's all sorts of different things rolled into one. And it has a very distinct aesthetic. And also, in terms of its themes, explores something that is... On the same plane as other like augmented reality films like The Matrix, which came out a year later. Or
1: The Fifth Element. Or The
2: Fifth Element. Um, there's lesser known ones like Existence that mm-hmm. David Cronenberg did. Um, and another one called The 13th Floor that has like Gretchen Mole and, and Vincent mm-hmm. D'Onofrio in it. That's about the same sort of uh, idea of, of being plugged into a virtual reality space and, and not knowing whether or not your existence is real. This one has, I, I think, maybe one of the most intriguing conceptualizations of that idea and also where it lands uh, in terms of its resolution of that idea is distinct in its own right as well.
1: It's wholly original. You know, even though I had said to you offhandedly, oh, this feels like The Matrix meets Tim Burton, it really, this movie really is extremely unique. It looks and feels and sounds and takes you places like no other movie, especially when you think about what else was being made at the time, not just Titanic and The Wedding Singer, but movies like You've Got Mail and all these other sort of like pedestrian uh, rom-coms or even just like movies that were more shoot-'em-up action like Armageddon and whatnot. There's a line in Roger Ebert's review where he says, I realized when I was watching this movie that all the movies I've seen over the last however many years have just been about people standing around talking to each other. <laughs> and this movie was not that. Yeah. And and he's absolutely right. I, if movie, I remember
2: correctly, he really liked this movie. He
1: adored this movie. And this movie... Absolutely makes you understand that it's not like anything else and distinguishes itself from all of the other movies you've seen, especially if you put yourself back in the mindset of like a 1998 audience and think about what else was being made. Yeah, it was a bunch of movies about people standing around talking to each other and then here comes this movie and it just like upends, you know the way we're doing things formally. And it's definitely not just a movie about people standing around talking to each other. No,
2: it's something <laughs> really, really special. In In that vein, and, and and with that idea in mind of all of these other movies being the same, you also kind of have to consider this movie and its messages in comparison to... Other films of the specific year as well, you know 1998 I we haven't done many movies yet on the show But you've got mail is one from that same year and when we got into the politics of that movie It is the exact opposite of this film. It is all about uh, assimilation and being subsumed within the new sort of capitalist culture and ideology and this film, a lot like the films of 1999 that we talk about, whether it be The Blair Witch Project, whether it be Existence, whether it be The Matrix, all of these sort of rallying against the system kind of movies, this one sort of uh, marshals in that idea and has a very sort of revolutionary politics to it, albeit one that is still very Americanized, very individualized, but it definitely does... Uh, herald that new sort of anti-establishment ideology that started to really take root in popular culture near the end of the decade.
1: Super quick cliff note synopsis of this movie. The long and the short of it is that our main character, a one John Murdoch, is sort of awakened and um, sent down this spiral of events that lead him to a bunch of discoveries um, that sort of make him, make him question his reality. There's a detective, there's a woman who's supposedly his wife. He can't remember anything. There are all these sort of clues around him signaling that he may or may not be a murderer. And there's you know this, this metropolis that we see perpetually in nighttime where things just feel a little bit off. There's this simulacrum that you're talking about where we sort of get a sense that there's an artifice.
2: Right, everything feels familiar, but also very forbidding and distant. Everything looks a little bit like a place, but has elements to it that sort of render it, uh, or rather, rather give us an indication that our level of comfort with this specific city as... New York or London or Chicago is a falsehood. It's, it's, it's from all different kinds of places. It's,
1: it's a nowhere place. And the anachronicity of a lot of the aesthetics of the movie is quite purposeful. Um, and I think disorienting for a reason. And, you know, ultimately he sort of comes to understand that there is a group of these beings who are manipulating the people in this city to, to try to understand and find the human soul and understand what makes us human,
2: right? They're aliens and they're looking for a way to preserve their power and to survive by figuring out how to generate individuality and individual memory and experience so that they can continue to live beyond their collective self.
1: And one of the things that they do is manufacture and extract and sort of commodify memories. And they have this tuning that they do every night, which is all the time, frankly, uh, at midnight where everyone sleeps and they sort of pick the players that they want to play with. The people whose lives they want to adjust, they want to give them new memories, give them new experiences to try to understand what makes a human, human. It's It's a strange sort of stretch for me that there's this, like chess game of people and their memories and that that is like somehow the thing they're deciding is the the means to figuring out the soul but regardless of whether or not it sort of makes sense for the story it was interesting it was an interesting thought experiment i felt like there was a through line there you know sort of an allegory for living in a postmodern world right it's a pretty obvious one it's one that a lot of movies, as we've talked about on this show, toward the end of the, the decade, the 90s, kind of beat around. But I found it handling this idea of, you know, the alienation from our own human experience, the kind of commodification of things like memories and experiences and love and these intangibles, that that felt like a really Novel take on the corrosive and mechanizing march of a capitalist postmodern society.
2: There's certainly a message here about you know, kind of rallying against that uh, that hegemonic thought, right? And and if we consider the '90s in the era that we're we're investigating here as a, a period of economic and Social prosperity and hegemony on the American front, at the very least, you know, this sort of like idea of of sort of third way centrism, you know, uniting all sort of ideologies under uh, a neoliberal political project. It's also creating a culture that is really monotone. I don't think a surprise or or an accident here that the the strangers, as they're called, the the sort of aliens that control the machinations of this world, are clad completely in black and very pallid and you know have this sort of like uh almost kind of like chattering hive mind sort of aesthetic and look Mm -hmm. their 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 sounds and, and the way that they move is all uh very indicative of some sort of like collective and not in a collective in in sort of like an ideological uh you know revolutionary way of of you know organizing in a particular way, it's it's more about that, like we said, that that subsuming into nothingness, into sort of a a squalor that that masks itself as contentedness and uniformity. And this movie certainly you know comes down on the side of that being, that being the thing to to fight against. That thing being, uh, being shackling. And tells us, and the film tells us that we need to pursue a different sort of ideology, you know. And, and I think if we stretch it out, like I said, to to the culture at large at the time, this is one of the earliest films that I've found that starts to deal with that cultural reaction and response to the hegemony of third-way centrism and, and sort of like Clintonite politics of the era. It's one that is completely the opposite of a lot of the romantic comedies and more of the, uh, sort of basic cultural staples that says uh, this is artifice and does so in a, in a really entrancing way. There's a lot to this movie from the get go that has this very dreamlike sort of quality to it. The pacing is something that I, once I locked into was not jarring. But certainly um, kept me at a distance. You know, there there are a lot of moments where things are cut, uh, where a character is in one place and then another, in a way that is sort of antithetical to the way that sort of seamless, invisible editing often is is achieved in films, where you would intercut one person's movement from A to B with another character's story or another character's movement. And in this, they try not to, to do that so frequently. There will often be times where, like William Hurt as the detective is investigating a crime scene and then uh, a cutaway. And then in the next moment, he is in his office at the police station. And all of these things that make it all feel very dreamlike.
1: And that's not unlike what happens to the characters within the world of the movie that they're all sort of experiencing these spotty patches of time and, you know, a conversation here or a flash of a, a memory that may or may not be theirs. And the movie formally reflects kind of that same experiential arc for the viewer.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, to some of the, like, really... Some of my favorite moments in this are... Uh, the conversations around memory or lack thereof. And I, I kept coming back to how fascinating this sort of notion of nostalgia is in the movie, how potent a drug it is, but how it's used within the film's aesthetic and within the film's narrative uh, simultaneously as a crutch and something of like a cudgel or almost like, you know, a, a sort of Venus flytrap or something, right? All of the aesthetics of the film are deliberately uh, hearkening to specific moments in history or to other cultural indicators and signifiers. The, the film, like I said, is is earlier is is a sci-fi film wearing a film noirs skin, and it uses a lot of those signifiers of like forties fifties era. Noirish sort of America the 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 very intense stark lighting the the diners and the the dress and and the Sort of like smoky lounges all of that stuff is there In terms of the the production design as well. This certainly recalls like Blade Runner It recalls things like Brazil the Terry Gilliam film a lot of these movies are are sort of directly quoted in the film's aesthetics And so the film utilizes this idea of nostalgia to make us at once comfortable and also uh, extremely defensive and uh, and dubious of of the prospect of what's being presented to us. Mm. Likewise, in the film, I think specifically to Rufus Sewell's character, John Murdoch, and his obsession and infatuation with Shell Beach. Right? this place that he finds in a postcard, this place from his inserted childhood memories, that doesn't really exist. It's a thing that's been implanted. And it sort of represents to me thematically this idea of the danger of nostalgia, the danger of pursuing a future that looks and feels so much like our past. And uh, couldn't help but extrapolate that outward to The current political moment, Mm -hmm. you know, with with the election of Joseph R. Biden. And, you know, in in the immediate sense, it is uh, a nostalgia for Obama era politics. Mm -hmm. But given Joe Biden's sort of, you know, seniority and, and his experiences in Congress, the the current moment also feels a lot like we are longing for. And voting based on the decision to recommit to our nostalgia for the 90s and to this idea of sort of third wave centrism, this idea of a unifier in chief, the idea of somebody who wants a strong uh, and principled Republican party rather than fighting and opposing the Republican political project. You know this. The, it seems like people are really, really set on this idea of having somebody who will bring in the moderates, who will, uh, <laughs> you know, wave the flag of centrism, in a way that we have seen in our lifetime, in a way that spelled a lot of really negative, sort of cause and effect relationships between. You know, bipartisan legislation and the collapse of the American working class and the collapse of of American industry and the collapse of any sort of left political project.
1: We are in the mess of casualties of Clintonian and Joe Biden was right there with them. The the Democratic, the new Democrats, I think they were called.
2: The the DLC, the Democratic Leadership. The
1: Democratic Committee. Leadership Committee. Um, Joe Biden was right there with him. You know, we are we are in the mess of casualties that are a direct and long, long fought result of that type of politicking. And in this current moment, I find it interesting that the man who literally wrote the crime bill, um, Who is you know, this sort of refrain that we hear a lot these days, which is that um, the carceral justice system or the carceral system, I will say, because a lot of people believe that there is no justice contained in this system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The carceral system that we have here in America is another form of Jim Crow politics, right? And we have a response to that in this current moment and we are electing the man who wrote the crime bill right. who, who literally architected the uh the current structure right. of our carceral system somebody
2: who you know can serve uh, in creating parallels as a direct proxy to the strangers right somebody who is responsible for uh the machinations and for orchestrating the strictures that that keep people in this sort of perpetual bondage
1: and i would argue that a lot of liberals share the same symptom of the people that live in this city in the movie which is a short term memory or no memory at all
2: i was going to touch on that for sure you know like in the in the movie itself the answer is easy because there is an antagonistic and and sort of pernicious force that is acting in in concert and doing something very obvious once somebody is awoken to it. The thing that, you know, if you want to draw parallels to uh, American culture and, and American politics and, and society at large, if you want to draw those parallels, it, it's, it's a much uh, deeper rooted and multi-pronged effort to keep people in that sort of perpetual uh sort of like goldfish brain mentality, right? Like politicians do this all the time, the way that they sort of rehabilitate themselves and are given sort of carte blanche to uh define and set the terms under which they're remembered. You know, you I mean, you see Obama playing with a lot of that right now, not to mention all the neocons uh, that are are, you know, now commentators on MSNBC or for the Atlantic or or any number of or, you know, New York We're Times.
1: Opening- speeches at the Democratic National Convention. Yeah.
2: And and, and just, you know, the this sort of, uh, you know, current attempt to to rehabilitate George W. Bush and his cohorts, you know, it, it, all of these things are are done by, yes, the people themselves, but the media as an arm of this as well, you know, the people who are are tasked with historicizing and giving us the contextualization necessary to understand our moment. Often are not doing that job particularly well either. They are reporting things objectively and in the moment. And because the news cycle is what it is, and because our access to it is, is so abundant and 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 everything is so readily available at, at you know, the drop of a hat and the touch of a button, it's easy to figure it out if you do a little bit of searching. But most people who report on this thing, and and, and I feel like a lot of uh, you know, corporate journalism is intended to be consumed in the moment without that historicization.
1: Absolutely. and and Completely, completely lacking historicization. And much like the experience of this movie um, or the experiences contained within this movie, it's kind of a hodgepodge of a a bunch of different things we remember from our past. And it shifts day to day. The history is an amalgamation. And yes, it absolutely shifts day to day depending on which perspective they want to come at you from if we had a you know a new, york, a new york times constantly reminding us of the very real and extensive casualties of george w bush's politics and decisions made not just by him but people throughout his cabinet on a regular basis, I I think we'd all find it a lot harder to opine for, you know, this folksy guy who just like gave everyone nicknames and like, it, you know, it's not about whether he's a good or bad guy. It is just about this lack of historicizing that, that um, can lead to problematic conflations.
2: You're bringing up an interesting read of, of the text and something I was thinking about while we were watching, you know, this this unwillingness to engage with contradictions. And you see it happen in the film pretty readily. Um, people sort of uh, act, acting in, in sort of retribution against uh, anything that comes up that presents something contradictory to their nature or, or something that represents, uh, you know, sort of the pulling back of the wool a little bit, you know, and, and people see the things that are wrong. You know, William Hurt's character, I think, is the best example of this because he does have like a fundamental change in his perspective. But at the beginning of the film, he is so ready to latch on to the things about his identity that signify his place and his purpose and call upon those memories and call upon those sort of aesthetic and cultural indicators that tell him I'm a detective and I'm solving crimes That he he simply dismisses the things that call attention to To anything that that isn't that to the inconsistencies You know, he even has a a, a colleague who Goes a little bit mad and eventually kills himself because he witnesses uh, The the strangers changing things he wakes up by accident and sees what the world is for those few moments when everyone falls asleep and the people who actually control things start to tinker and toy and make this place in their image. And, uh, y- you know, it. it's such a it's a thing that I feel like people have a hard time with and and have a, have a ch- it's a challenge that you have to reckon with when you kind of come into a more uh, radical ideological perspective. Radical is an intense word for some people, I know. But I say that meaning only something that is antithetical and and opposed to the status quo. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not talking about joining ISIS. I'm not talking about blowing up a, a street in Nashville. You know, like like that is not what I mean when I say radical here. What I mean is, you know, something that is is in direct challenge and opposition to the neoliberal political project adopted by and carried out by both Parties in our electoral system, when people start to get wise to those machinations and start to try to find a place outside of that, uh, you know, I I hate to use the term because I don't really like it, but but that Overton window, right? That sort of that that collective spectrum of what is socially acceptable politics, and usually that is just a little bit right of center to just a little bit left of center, but mostly. Uh, embodying the entire center when people start to look for something outside of that there is a moment where you start to kind of question your reality Mm -hmm. you start to wonder am i wrong you start to wonder uh you know who am i without these things who am i without uh these signifiers of my place in a world the way it is that feels comfortable that allows me to continue to go through the motions and before long you start to kind of understand and, and realize that uh, You can't you can't ever really go through the motions with like a a, a pure and and uh, And unsullied conscience, right? I, I think about, you know, someone who's really popular liberal circles herself uh, uh, Greta Greta Thunberg, you know, who's like this young climate activist who because of her her place on the autism spectrum was unable to live with the contradictions that she saw in her life. So, she made radical changes to her lifestyle and to her family's lifestyle. She is completely meatless. I think she's vegan. Her entire family is vegetarian as well. They don't fly anywhere. She when she goes to conferences like when she was at, uh, you know, Davos, she slept outside in a tent like In Below freezing temperatures instead of going into a five-star hotel all because she couldn't live with the idea of her behaviors and her attitude being uh, Completely in contradiction to the things she knows about the world
1: and the things that she you know believes in and is fighting for yeah, Yeah, it's the the demand to reconcile constantly that
2: or or to or to not have to reconcile, right? The the way that we can sort of find a place that is is comfortable to us at all times.
1: Well, reconciliation through complete denial, right? Sure. Which is still reconciliation uh, to a certain degree because um you're you're finding your way out of the situation in some fashion. This demand to reconcile in some fashion or another, you know, in order to stay comfortable, is one that when you start to learn about certain realities, you can no longer do. And people who are still in that space of remaining comfortable and wanting to, to maintain a kind of relationship that allows them to exist pleasantly um, <laughs> and, uh, and not have to confront the horrors of uh, uh, very tangible realities of our existence that you know looking at people who who are outside of that is challenging and so when because
2: it's a constant reminder of of all of the all of the mechanics and and all of the hoops you have to jump through just to preserve a worldview that uh, doesn't feel challenging yeah I mean time. it's
1: the thing people have been talking about for Um, decades if not centuries which is that capitalism by nature is like inherently violent it is it is a system that extracts more than it generates Mm -hmm. and gives back Um, right
2: it it requires exploitation it requires a sense of imperialist tendencies whether those are around uh, a nation state or a, a collective there is always some sort of uh, you know, imagined community, as they're called, um, that that is required in order to to prosper under under a capitalist model.
1: So you know, at the core of it, the system we're running on is a problematic one um, that creates a lot of pain and a lot of death, right alongside um, prosperity for a certain few people. We have been trained to you know, turn a blind eye to those things in order to just make it through our day. When you've decided that you can no longer do that because your curiosity has led you to a place that forces you to puncture that womb of reconciliation, that's hard for people who are still in the womb. And there's no judgment passed. You know, I'd like to think not. But I've certainly had my own journey of that that sort of questioning of like, when you start to sort of see the code everywhere Mm -hmm. and understand what's actually happening um, and start to see a lot of the painful uh, circumstances of our reality, it does make you question like, what am I doing here? What is the point of all of this? Why
2: am I doing this?
1: Why is any of this, right? <laughs> and then you kind of have to come back from that and find your way and start to become, you know, a generative part of the solution. And I've, I've sort of found my way there, you know, through some challenging conversations and some own sort of like internal uh, examination myself. But that's work. Right, it that's is. that's work, and it and it requires me feeling a lot of painful, um, kind of disconnecting things, and oftentimes means that I'm alienating others along the way, and um and this movie explores a lot of those ideas, yeah. whether you know incidentally or not. You can find a lot of those same themes of you know sort of what an arc of I'll call it radicalization, but we can call it something else. You know, liberation, uh, awake, stepping out of the cave. Like philosophers Mm -hmm. have been talking about this for millennia, right? This movie plays with a lot of those themes that kind of offer a a proxy for what certain points on that journey may look and feel like.
2: Yeah, I'm glad we're going in this direction because one of the things I wanted to talk about was, is... This idea of of tuning that that they they put forth in the film, uh, tuning is supposedly you know it, it's it's what the strangers call their uh, tinkering their their reworking and and manufacturing of of the world that they've built of this this fake metropolis. One of the things that distinguishes Murdoch Rufus Sewell's character in the film is that he, for some reason that is. is Inexplicable and, and unexplained.
1: He's just evolved. That's yeah, really the he, he, only answer they offer us. Right.
2: That he's he's somehow figured out a way to also be able to tune. And, you know, this movie draws enough comparisons to the matrix that I feel hesitant to even do this. But I think that this is one of the places where uh the matrix the matrixes, the matrices, the matrices, uh <laughs> ideas about people's capacity within the augmented reality. Uh, are actually superior to this film's. Like I said already, uh, this film explores it in in the idea of yes, a, a an anomalous evolution of a single individual, which yes is mirrored in the idea of the one mm-hmm. in the Matrix. But remembering that, with that exception of the one being sort of this like liberating I- idea that the that people rally around, outward. right? That the characters in the Matrix. Once they learn of their reality, are also all able to manipulate and augment the rules of that reality
1: and right. liberate others along the way
2: exactly. And in this film, that doesn't happen. It's an interesting place where the film winds up. At the very end of it, Murdoch is able to defeat the strangers using their own powers against them, you know, with his capacity to tune. And rebuilds the world in his image. This is another one of those interesting places where we talk about the idea of nostalgia and memory. Where he builds the world in not a new image. In not an in, in image that is completely novel or, or original to the, the place or, or the necessities of the people. But specifically one that, that resides within his idea of mm-hmm. what contentedness and satisfaction is and looks like. Um, again, you know, nostalgia—nostalgia nostalgia possibly representing this idea of a trap or or of a prison, right? It, it's its own form of containment and confinement, where he is alone in his understanding of how to manipulate the world and change it, and everybody else simply plays along. You know, at the very end of the film, he reunites with Jennifer Connelly, who uh, through the implantation of memories uh, is supposed to be his wife. ...throughout a, a particular uh, stretch of this film. At the end, she has no recollection or memory of him. And they get to start anew and potentially create a life and a relationship together. But she still isn't liberated from uh, you know, the idea that everything is normal. And so this sort of like hyper-individualistic idea of, of uh, you know, the capacity for revolution... ...or the capacity for revolutionary change... Is one that I think falls ever so slightly short of actual freedom, actual liberation within the context and the theme of the film. It is. It's a movie that, yes, represents sort of like a a kind of textbook happy ending if you're not uh, too inquisitive or or if you're not examining it too much. But one that presents a, I don't know, a, a more sort of heterodox idea when you when you approach it, understanding that. This man is now no longer beholden and a slave to, uh, you know, this this collective body of captors, but to the prison itself that he can't escape. Regardless of how much he's able to dress it up and change it the way he wants to, it is still a prison. It is still a place that is unchangeable in its sort of shape and and capacity.
1: Yeah, and I really like what you're saying about utilizing the text of the film as, you know, a lens with which to look at our current moment and sort of understand different ideological actors within our current moment. And by your logic, by your reading of of this film, which I really like, the kind of leftist perspective that that has broken from uh, that reality, that constructed reality and is not just longing for something that once was, but actually imagining something new and working to generate something new. That's the distinction. Um, And also that that requires collectivist effort. It's not one person doing that. It's not one president leading us there. It's not one uh, senator it requires a a lot of people and a lot of actors. So if you use that as a legend for, you know, our current political landscape, you start to understand, Oh, this movie, uh, you know, maybe the people who long for something that came before and just want to get rid of the bad stuff like there, you sort of see how they fit within the framework of this movie. Um, And I don't, want to thump my own chest and say like leftists are the ones who get it and we're the ones who are like operating at a matrix level or whatever but no because
2: those people are the ones who are oftentimes having the same sort of uh disagreements and infighting that is necessary to understand what that new world looks like but there's you know there's a distinction between the idea of you know sort of the accelerationist idea of dismantling the structures as they as they are and and building something completely new from a, a, a different theoretical model. And then there's people who are a little bit more subdued than that, right? Like the entire idea of like the DSA is to build opportunities and, and capacity for socialist organizing within the framework of capitalism, within the structures that are already there. And these these disagreements happen all the time amongst the left. But it it absolutely is a thing that, as we were saying at the very beginning of this conversation, requires a deeper imagination, requires something bigger than just the idea of sanitation and cleansing this space of the thing that came before it.
1: You still have to think beyond the borders of the city walls, right? right? You have to go beyond the... uh, You know, it's Truman walking through the door, right? Mm -hmm. You have to go beyond the confines of what you've known and experienced previously and imagine something different.
2: I didn't even think of the Truman show as another one of these films of sort of a, a a simulated reality and, and breaking free of it. It's a great one though. We'll have to do that at some point, but yeah, even in this film, Murdoch by the end of it does construct something outside of the sort of preordained, uh, boundaries of of the city. But he he creates an his, ocean.
1: But it's something from his memory. To yes. your point, it's something he's experienced before, right. or at least in theory.
2: It's some right. It's something generated from an idea that has already been implanted. But it is still you know pushing up against the boundaries of what was what the presumptive limits of that space are. Right mm-hmm. when when he kind of drains the city of some of its water and builds this sort of outer ring. That simulates and represents an ocean, a
1: floating moat,
2: right? Just a floating moat on this, this In
1: space <laughs>
2: on a, on some sort of mortal coil through uh, through through space and time. Uh, but I I really like this movie. I think it's got a ton of awesome ideas going on. It's very visually distinct. You know, bless him, Rufus Sewell does a great job as a leading man, which he does not get a lot of opportunities to do. Um, you know, he's a, he's a British actor. And, Everyone
1: knows him as the villain from The Knight's
2: Tale. Right, he's he's uh, uh what's his name? Adamar, Count Adamar, in mm-hmm. in a Night's Tale. He was in some kind of bad movies after this. I guess he's in some some TV shows more recently that that are pretty popular whose names escape me now. But I, I said this to you when we watched like but in, in the battle between Rufus Sewell and Joaquin Phoenix, only one of those people was bound to survive and have a have a fruitful career in Hollywood. And Joaquin is a phoenix, like yeah. he's, he's not going <laughs> to not win that fight. Totally. Um, but I no, I think everyone does a great job here. You've got Kiefer Sutherland and, and, and William Hurt doing great, great work in, in supporting roles. Jennifer Connelly being Jennifer Connelly, as she often is, which, which is not a bad thing. I actually very much like Jennifer Connelly. I, w- I hope that this movie at some point is, is seen by more than just the cult. Seen by more than just the the small legion of devoted followers that that currently admire it, because it 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 really is one that explores a lot of these awesome ideas of of you know late late nineties politics, late nineties culture, and and a, a great sort of fuck the man, fight the system movie in that same vein. Um, in, in a way that, despite its obvious comparisons to other movies, is is incredibly. Original. Um, this
1: movie is special and interesting and entertaining. I feel like I'm in a world bereft of a lot of those things. <laughs> so if nothing else, it was a sheer delight for those reasons. Um, and I think as a movie to sort of close out the year of 2020 and give us some things to ponder about our experience in this current moment, uh, and what, you know, a future moving forward may look like. It's a highly fruitful exercise. Um, so there's, you know, there's the entertainment factor and there's, I think a lot to be considered in watching it as well, which also makes for a a good time if you want to use your brain and finish some sentences.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Which sometimes I do and sometimes I don't.
2: Good end of history movie. Good end of the year movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, to all of you devoted listeners, mom, uh, and our capitalist overlord, Linda, uh, as well as a handful of others who who occasionally tune into the show. We really do appreciate you listening. We are going to have many more of these Uh, coming to you in 2021 and beyond. Uh, As always, subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Follow us at hitfactorypod on Twitter. And uh, we will see you in the new year.
1: Tune in next time to see what I replace with whatever, whatever, whatever.
2: Can't wait. (laughs)